Blog Talk Radio. Check for messages under my thing. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Rifleman Radio Show. The Rifleman Radio Show is brought to you by the Appleseed Project, which is the sole project of the Revolutionary War Veterans Association. The Revolutionary War Veterans Association is dedicated to bringing you the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program, and at the same time, talking to you about the history and the heritage of your nation. I hope everyone's had a uh, fantastic uh, Fourth of July weekend, and uh, they're coming up on the end of that, and uh, and that everyone has remembered what the Fourth of July weekend is about, that it's not about, uh, well, I mean, it's become, 
about uh, beer and hot dogs and apple pie. But the historical origins of the date, the date that the announcements were made that America had declared independence from England and uh, and made it official that that's what we were going to do. Up until that point, uh, the colonies uh, for over a year had been trying to, to figure out some way to... Uh, to have their grievances addressed and to reconcile with England. And uh, and by the time uh, July 4th, 1776 rolled around, it had been made clear in a number of ways that this was not going to be a possibility, that the only thing that was going to end up, uh, the only outcome was going to either be a free and independent North America, or uh, they were going to have to bow down and uh, in defeat and accept uh, the terms of the English. So this was a very important date, a very important decision to make. And uh, by the grace of God, uh, a little over uh, seven years later, it came into being, and this uh, and this nation has been running since then. And that's what July 4th is about. And that, I wish that that it was made more clear to everyone uh, why. If there, were, if there were more programs running, showing people why this was an, in, uh, an important date in American history. <clears throat> and, uh, and here at the Appleseed uh, Project, we're doing our absolute best to do that. We're going to uh, we're going to tell you about the events of April 19, 1775, which set into motion the events which would finally launch us onto a road for independence, and that that Declaration of Independence would be made on July 4, 1776. <clears throat> All right, uh, tonight we have several things that we're going to do. And uh, uh, we're going to eventually talk about the Battle of Oriskany. Uh, and I'm not going through the American Revolutionary War in order, but uh, I'm kind of just picking and choosing uh, the the battles and the events uh, that I really enjoy speaking about. They're the most relevant, uh, relevant ones uh, that I'm telling you about. Uh, we talked about... Uh, uh, last week we talked about King's Mountain and about the uh, one of the which is one of the turning points in the War of American Independence in the South. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about the uh, Battle of Oriskany, which was actually uh, the uh, the turning point of the war uh, in its entirety. Uh, and uh, we'll get into that more. Uh, we'll get into that more as we go along. <clears throat> but uh, I just want to let you know that's what we have coming up. I want to thank Benjamin Smith 
who was the uh, co-editor of the uh, Patriots of the American Revolution magazine, uh, for coming on and, uh, and speaking with us. And uh, I'd like to remind you guys to make sure that, uh, that you at least think about uh, taking a s- subscription to the magazine because uh, it's a fantastic magazine. Uh, if you go to the uh, Patriots of the AmericanRevolution.org website, uh, you'll get a chance to look at the, some of the topics covered and stuff like that, some of these stories and stuff that are written. And uh, I urge you to uh, subscribe to the magazine and uh, give yourself another uh, another source of information about the American Revolutionary War that will be brought straight to your door. You won't have to uh, go buy a book. You won't have to go to the library uh, every few weeks and see if they've gotten any new books with any new information uh, or anything like that. You'll have information delivered to your door. And uh, uh, in the... Uh, in the same vein, these are the folks that uh, are helping us out. Uh, Mr. Smith has put a full-page article, a full-page ad in the magazine uh, promoting the Appleseed Project. He said he's had another one coming up in the next month. There will be four months of uh, free publicity promotions we're getting from this magazine. The magazine is a very slick, uh, professional magazine and it's read by quite a few people, and uh, so he's giving up uh, he's giving up a substantial amount in revenue in order to promote the program. And as you know, we have a, an ongoing project here to uh, of reciprocation. That means helping out folks who are helping us. And uh, if I can get the uh, the well, there he goes. He's always a jump ahead of me. That's uh, the rifleman co-host and screener. And he is putting into the chat room now the uh, the URL, the addresses for the magazine, www.patriotsar.com. That's the magazine's website. And then call screener too, if you would uh, if you would enter in the rest of the folks that uh, are on the uh, they're on the push roll for us. That is. Uh, Blue Feather's Handmade Soap, and uh, Blue Feather is uh, one of the instructors, shoot bosses in the program there in New Mexico, and she does a lot of other admin stuff for the program. She's been with the program for a long time. Her, uh, Sam, Dame, Sam Damewood, and uh, uh, the New Mexico group, the core of the New Mexico group, came into the program at the same time, the first folks to walk through the door there in New Mexico, and uh, she makes a tremendous handmade soap. And uh, the more that uh, the more that you buy from her, then the more apple seeding she can do. Very inexpensive. I think it runs about uh, five or six bucks a bar for the handmade soap, which is a very, a very good price. <clears throat> We've got, uh, uh, and uh, don't, let me forget Tyler Glock, who is also part of the original New Mexico crew who got the state up and running. And uh, uh, the call center wants me to remind you that she makes a great shaving soap. And uh, if you're looking for some handmade soap, this is the place to get it. And let me tell you, I'm not just uh, I'm not just talking about something I don't know because. I managed to talk her out of uh, 
five or six bars while I was there at her house. We're doing the uh, uh, the instructor boot camp at her house. Her and Tyler Scott graciously let us use their home to run the uh, first Mexico IBC there. And I talked her out of uh, five or six bars of soap. And uh, it was a fantastic soap. Uh, you know, you could use it every day. It had uh, a lot of moisturizer and stuff in it, things that I don't know about. I can tell if I've been using it, but I... I, I can't tell you uh, the reasons it worked so good, but uh, I could tell when I was using it. made my, my hand stop uh, cracking to pieces and my face stop cracking. And uh, uh, and we certainly appreciate all that she's doing for the program. So if you can help, uh, if you need uh, if you need some soap, if you need some handmade soap or if you need some soap, Get it from her. She's one of the uh, the folks in the program, and we want to push the folks in the program. We've got uh, uh, the folks from InTheRabbitHole.com. That's the Urban Survival blog. Uh, we've got our buddies uh, Poker Face. They're there too. <coughs> we've got uh, the uh, uh, the Common Sense Coalition. Talk radio, that is Beth Schoenberg and her group. And uh, Beth is a good friend to the program. She's been with us since the beginning. And uh, she she continues to be a good friend to the program, talking about uh, Appleseed on her uh, syndicated radio show and uh, uh, and on her blog and uh, Facebook pages. <clears throat> We've got... Uh, uh, Let's see. We've got the DAR and SAR folks. If you'll check into the uh, the chat room, then you'll see uh, the call screeners putting these websites up. Let me let me while I'm talking about DAR and SAR, though, let me remind you guys uh, the thing I've been pushing for the last couple of years, and the thing that's going to help you the absolute most is to start making alliances uh, with groups and organizations in your area. Even if there's only one you and you can only do so much, how do you get around that? Well, you make yourself a, uh, you make yourself, uh, a force multiplier by contacting these other organizations. You contact the local DAR and SAR organizations, you go down there and you speak to the organizations, and then you get them to give you a hand. Our missions are very similar. They will be glad to give you a hand. Uh, If any folks are listening tonight and you have worked with the SAR, DAR folks and they have helped you out, please call in and tell us about it. I've told you about how they helped me, Uh, but if there are other folks that have done it, then please uh, call in tonight and uh, and give us the information on that. You can call in at uh, 347-308-8790. And uh, I've got a question here on the chat. It says, what kind of alliance? By alliance, what I mean is <clears throat> you uh, you seek uh, to work with programs outside of Appleseed. And that can be the SAR and DAR chapters, Sons of the American Revolution, Daughters of the American Revolution, uh, 
you go and you give speeches at their membership uh, meetings. You invite them to come to Appleseed. And once you do that, and once you talk to them, then they will start pushing Appleseed through their organizations. Uh, you contact uh, uh, Ju uh, Judy Rhodes at the Diva Wow, the Women Outdoors Worldwide, and you start uh, pushing Appleseed locally at your locations through the Diva Wow organization. You set up shoots for the organization uh, in your area, and you get them to help you promote them. What they do is they promote them to their memberships. There are so many organizations out there that you can uh, you can strike up an alliance with. By alliance, I don't mean that uh, you put on your banner Appleseed slash SAR. What I mean is you help to the organizations. Uh, you go and you give speeches at their organizations about what you do, about what we do at the Appleseed Project do. And then you invite their memberships, get them to invite their members to come to the Appleseeds. And then at the Appleseeds, you can have uh, uh, literature and stuff like that that you allow them to put out after the Appleseeds. Or uh, there have been different organizations like the uh, Texas State Rifle Association. We would have an apple seed, and then at the end of the apple seed, I would close the apple seed down. As soon as I closed it down, I would say uh, that uh, Mr. So-and-so, the uh, uh, regional coordinator for the Texas State Rifle Association, would like to speak with you before you go. And then you allow them to speak to the assembled folks there. After you close, after you formally close the apple seed down, you allow him to speak at the apple seed. And the Appleseed Project encourages you to do this. We encourage you to go out and find folks uh, to make alliances with. Now, we do have a policy where folks can't, uh, you can't give speeches or push people during in the course of an Appleseed event. But uh, at the end of the Appleseed event, there's no reason that people can't, uh, that people can't talk. There's no reason that you yourself can't go to a Sons of the American Revolution, Daughters of the American Revolution uh, meeting and give a presentation, that you can't go to a local, local rifle club and give a presentation, uh, that you can't go to uh, any of the if – you, if you look, uh, just Google this, Google women's shooting organizations, and you'll find there are plenty of them. Offer to set them up a women's-only event that you'll run for the, the for the ladies there, go to their organization when they're having a meeting, talk to them about it, and see if they're interested in doing it. And I'm sure they're going to tell you, yes, they are. I've yet to meet a, a women's organization yet who has said no to us setting up an apple seed for them. There's a 100% yes factor in that that I've experienced so far. You, you may experience something different, uh, but... But I myself have uh, uh, have experienced a 100% uh, positive uh, uh, acceptance of this. All right. So don't forget to multiply yourself and your organization. This is a way, if there's only two or three of you in your area, this is a way for you to make yourself uh, into six or 12 or 24 or 75 is by getting other organizations to help you out. That's how you do it. Uh, the Devo Wow organizations, 
uh, has sold out every event that we have put up for them at Texas. Uh, we put up the events. We get them listed. We get the ranges, every, all the details worked out. We turn it over to them. They run it to their members, and uh, the events are sold out. You can do that with any organization uh, that is, uh, you know, that is a professional, above board uh, organization. If you have any questions about whether or not you should contact any certain age, uh, organization, then talk to your state coordinator or uh, talk to, you can always uh, uh, email, PM, or call me. I'll be glad to discuss it with you uh, on whether an organization that you're considering is going to be uh, uh, one that works or not. But, uh, but listen, guys, you all have common sense, all right? If you... If you tell me that you're going to go to a KKK or you want to go to a KKK meeting and do this, I'm going to tell you that's a bad idea, all right? And I don't have to tell you that because you already know that. Use your common sense. Find organizations that have similar missions to ours and then uh, and then you can uh, you can get them on board with this. Okay, sorry about that. I was getting a little bit. Uh, uh, I was I was hearing a bunch of people talking, and it was my own computer that uh, had opened up uh, one of those uh, commercials in one of the windows, and was uh, that's who was talking there, trying to sell me something on one of the websites. All right, so that's what we'd like you to do: is uh, talk to the folks, get. Uh, some help with uh, uh, with multiplying your force uh, locally. <clears throat> All right, and if uh, if any of you guys, uh, if anybody has any commercial ventures that they're working on, and it doesn't have to be related to Appleseed, if you're a member of the Appleseed Project, if you're uh, and you would like to get your uh, organization or your commercial venture listed, we'll be glad to do it for you here on the program free of charge. I say that because I don't want to blog talk and think I'm making money off any advertising here because I'm not, uh, I've never opted in in the last over two years, I've never opted in to the uh, uh, profit sharing. So the uh, the hundreds of thousands of, uh, of downloads have not made me a penny because I'm not uh, opting into revenue sharing, and uh, I'm not charging anybody to mention them on the radio show here. We're doing this so that we can uh, uplift our fellow Appleseed members. At the same time, if uh, anyone there has a uh, someone who has just uh, shot the rifleman standard, if you have an instructor that just passed his PC-1, 2, 3, or a full instructor, or they've shot, they've been a shoot boss at their first shoot, or anything else. If you have a state coordinator doing a great job, if you have a member of Apple Corps uh, that is really putting uh, uh, putting forth a lot of effort getting stuff done, then we want you to call in and give them thanks on the show. And uh, like I said, you can do that by calling three four seven. Three zero eight eight seven nine zero, and uh, and let the call screener know what you're going to do, 
and he'll put the information up for me, and uh, and we will get you on the air so that you can tell the folks who are working hard. Thank you. One of the things we're really good in the Alpha Project at doing is working folks to the bone because we're very passionate about what we do here. We're very passionate <clears throat> about freedom, about liberty, about uh, ensuring that the the rights, the freedoms, the liberty that that we have by virtue of living in this nation does not disappear. And we're willing to work really hard at that. And as you know, the uh, I say as you know, if you're a member, you know, but maybe if you're just tuning in, you don't know that the Appleseed Project is an all-volunteer, grassroots, uh, non-profit organization dedicated to teaching rifle marksmanship and American heritage. Nobody's getting paid to do this. They're doing it uh, because they're passionate about telling the story of American freedom, about uh, about making sure that people know how to safely and competently handle a rifle. And they devote their time to this free of charge. And for the greatest number of folks, it's no different. The people in Appleseed, uh, the analogy is no different than, uh, or the comparison is no different than like the folks uh, who pay taxes. You've got the, uh, the like the top, uh, the tiny part of the top percentage paying taxes for all the rest. And you have a tiny part of the folks in Appleseed. <laughs> we may have a ton of members, but we actually have a very small core group of folks that are doing all the work. And None of those folks are getting paid for it. And we ask a lot of our instructors. We ask a lot of them. Uh, it's not just uh, can you spare one weekend uh, one weekend four times a year, which is kind of like the baseline of what we ask folks to do, one weekend four times a year. There's a lot that goes into that and before that. There's a lot of preparation that you have to do, a lot of learning that you have to do before you can even – volunteer to uh, instruct at events. Uh, before you are in Apple's, before you're a full instructor, you have way over uh, way over 80 hours of instruction that you've had to uh, that you had to attend and, and learn and become competent at. Then after that, you're allowed to to teach at events. And like I said, we have a, like a baseline minimum. Uh, four events per year that we want you to teach. The, ma the majority of folk, folks teach more. They teach more than the baseline of four. And it's not just the Saturday and Sunday, because if you're a good instructor, you've put in at least eight hours preparing for that weekend. So that makes three days that you have uh, for a month that you're devoting to this. There's only... Uh, uh, there's only four weekends, maybe five sometimes, but there's only usually only four weekends in a month. That means you've given up 25% of your free time in a month to vote to the program. And that's a lot of work that the folks do, and a lot of people do more than that. There are a lot of folks that are doing two events. And, uh, and not only that, uh, I've told you many times before that the real work, the real effort, uh, that where Appleseed is either made or, or, or broken at, the real Appleseeding begins at the end of the event on Sunday. 
and it runs until the beginning of the next event on Saturday morning. That's where the real apple seed work is done. The Saturday and Sunday of the actual event, when you're actually getting out to teach, interact with folks, and spread the message, tell the story, that's the icing on the cake. That's the cream. That's the, that's the dessert. The real work is done in between those two. So a lot of people are putting in a great uh, number of hours, and we would like to... We would like for the folks who are seeing their buddies doing this, we'd like for them to call in and say, hey, listen, I want to give uh, thanks to uh, so-and-so. I want to give thanks to uh, this person for making their, uh, for shooting derived from the standards, or this person for making their PCs, et cetera. We'd like to get those folks mentioned. So please do that. And uh, like I said, the call-in number is 347 308 Seven nine zero, and uh, you're welcome to call in and uh, either push your uh, your organization or your your venture, or to talk about the folks that are working in your area. All right, we've got uh, a lot of events coming up, and uh, before I tell you how to to get to there. I'm going to tell you in just a second, but before, before I tell you how to get to the uh, the information page that tells you where they're occurring at, uh, let's let's find out first, why should you go? Why should you go to an Appleseed event? What's in it for you? Uh, there is... Uh, what, what is it going to do for you? I mean, most people, most of you guys, all of you already know how to shoot, right? All you guys know how to shoot, you know how to handle a rifle safely, uh, you know all about uh, uh, slings use, you know all about uh, the steady hold factors and your standing, sitting, and prone positions. You already know about the six steps to firing the shot, right? And how every shot, every single shot you fire in your life should be fired by the six steps. You already know that. Uh, you already know about natural point of aim, how to determine it and how to shift it onto the target. You already know about uh, inches, minutes, and clicks and how they pertain to your rifle and how to sight it incorrectly, right? All these guys, everybody in America already knows that. You already know the safety rules. You know the four Safety rules, you know, the six conditions that need to be met in order for a rifle to be safe. Uh, you guys know about the rifleman's bubble, about the rifleman's dance. So really there's, everybody knows all of this information. So really you don't need to go to an apple seed except, except in order to meet some of the best people this nation has to offer. So that's who you're going to meet at an Appleseed event. You're going to meet the absolute best folks that the nation has to offer. They're going to show up uh, Saturday morning. They're going to run all day Saturday. They're going to show up again Sunday morning. They're going to run all day Sunday. And at the end of the day, Sunday, those folks who are standing there with you, uh, who have stood there with you, through 105-degree uh, heat with 125-degree heat index, who have stood there with you 
through uh, six inches of uh, fresh snow in uh, 17 degrees temperature all the way till Sunday, who stood there with you through seven inches of rain, uh, who've gotten down at the end of the day on Saturday and the beginning of the day on Sunday, who've gotten down into uh, and laid down in two to three inches of water and mud in order to fire their string and stayed there wet, soaked, muddy until the end of the day on Sunday. That's Those are the best people in the nation. That's why you're going to go, right? Because you're going to meet those people. Those people are getting harder and harder to meet. Where are you going to meet them at? How are you going to find those folks who care about the nation in the way that you do? You're going to go to an apple seed rifle marksmanship event. And guess what? Maybe just hearing about the other stuff that I mentioned earlier, maybe just hearing about uh, swings, steady hole factors, how to get in the proper standing prone and seated position, uh, how to fire the shot by the six steps, how to determine your natural point of aim and shift it onto the target, how to understand inches, minutes, clicks, how they pertain to your rifle, what the come-ups on your rifle are, uh, how to understand the rifleman's dance, the rifleman's bubble, and then to hear about the events in detail of the most important day that this nation had, which is April 19, 1775. That's just thrown in for extra. That's just that's just extra stuff, just a refresher on that for you because uh, because you already knew all that. Well, if you want to get to an event, here's what you're going to need to do. You're going to have to find out where one is. And before I before I get started on that, let me tell you that there is an apple seed rifle marksmanship event within reasonable driving distance of you every single weekend of the year. That's how that's how large we've grown, how fast we've grown in the few shorter years we've been doing this. We've grown to the point where now that within uh, every weekend of the year. Within reasonable driving distance of you, there is an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event. Now, when I say reasonable driving distance, I'm not talking about uh, uh, the uh, in a distance so that uh, if you bought some fries from McDonald's, they'll still be hot and crispy when you get to the range. I'm talking about a reasonable distance that an American patriot would drive in order to hear the story of April 19, 1775. That might be 300 miles for you. All right? That's a reasonable distance for the amount of information you're going to get. That's a reasonable distance. My first reasonable distance was about 1,400 miles. And uh, one of the first guys that I taught after I learned how to teach, uh, he had driven about... Uh, I believe about 18 or 1900 miles, which was a reasonable distance for him to hear it from me. All right, we've grown large enough that you're not going to have to drive that far. You may have to drive uh, 200, 300 miles. That's a reasonable distance. All right? All right, well, let's get started. So, where you're going to find out where to go, you go to our homepage, rwva.org. That's the homepage for the Revolutionary. War Veterans Association. At the top of the page, you'll see a list of tabs. The second one from the left says Appleseed. If you put your cursor on that, you'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. 
that'll take you to a page that has a map of the United States on it. If you have a state, uh, if you want to attend in an event in a certain state, you put your cursor on that state and you click on it and you'll get uh, the information for that state. If you want to see what's going on all across the United States, then there's a hot link in the text, embedded in the text above it. And uh, you click on that, and that'll take you to a listing of all the events across the United States. Well, let's get started. We have the uh, July 9th and 10th weekend coming up. And before I do that, let me tell you this. When you have, when you look at the events, look at them, find one that you'd like to attend, and then go ahead and get it locked into your mind and attend it. Don't, uh, don't say this looks like a good one. I think I... Uh, if you want to, uh, if you want to attend an event, then take a look at the listing of events and, uh, Select the event that you would like to attend and then get it locked in. Here's how you do that. Look to the right. If you're on that page, you can look to the right. There will be two hot links. One says information. That will give you information for that specific date at that specific location. It will tell you where the event's going to be held, uh, directions on how to get there, contact information for that person, and other additional uh, bits of information for that specific location. Right under that is another one that says register. All right, now, what we'd like to do, once you've decided on a location, go ahead and register for it. Go ahead and get the pre-registered for that event. If you click on register, that'll take you to the uh, third-party software that we use for pre-registration. We'll use the, the Eventbrite registration system. Go ahead and get pre-registered for the event. Uh, that'll help you by ensuring that you have a place on the line. Not all of the events sell out, but they do sell out. So for you to, to go to an event that you didn't pre-register for and you walk up to it and you find out that it's sold out, uh, don't, don't think that that can't happen because it, has, it, it, it can and it has. The way to make sure it doesn't happen to you is to pre-register. Now, that'll do a couple of things. That'll make sure that you got a place on the line, and it'll make sure that that we know that you're coming. And if we know that you were coming, then we'll know the right number of folks to send, the right number of instructors to send, so that we have uh, a good instructor-to-student ratio. We'll have the... Uh, uh, sufficient amount of gear and stuff for you when you get there, <clears throat> and uh, and that is how we base that on because we have uh, every single weekend we've got uh, uh, between twenty and uh, sometimes fifty events occurring simultaneously on any given weekend. That's a lot of folks to be sending across the, the country. A lot of uh, airline tickets, a lot of uh, hotel rooms, a lot of supplies to be shipped. So this helps uh, it helps us out a great deal for you to pre-register. All right. <clears throat> now we've made this. As I said, this is a uh, this is a nonprofit 
organization. We've made it as absolutely inexpensive as we can. Uh, for the amount of information you're getting, this is a tremendous deal. But wait, there's more. We've made it even better in, in, in many cases. Uh, if you are a member of the, uh, the military, after duty guard or reserve, then you will attend the courses uh, at no charge to you from the RWVA. You may end up having to pay a range fee, uh, but that's out of our hands. That's the, uh, the, what the range would charge you for use of the range. But the, as, a, as an organization, we won't charge you uh, the fees for attending. If you're a law enforcement officer, you'll attend free. If you are a woman, uh, you'll only be charged $10. If you're a kid, only 5 Now, we're already, if you don't fit into those categories, it's going to be 70 bucks for two days, all right? $35 a day for some of the absolute best fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program in the United States today. That's already a deal. Now, if you're only having to pay five, $10 or $5, that's, that's even a much better deal. And... Uh, uh, if you have any questions concerning uh, if you fit into some category or what you're going to be charged, just contact uh, the uh, the person on the information page. Contact them, and they will let you know uh, if you have any questions about that. Uh, and I'll tell you the shoot bosses again that uh, as a shoot boss, you you're to use your discretion on who comes to the events uh, at no cost other than military and law enforcement women and kids. Uh, I'll tell you this, that there have been a couple of times where uh, there have been folks who have been strapped for cash, and uh, I've brought them in. I've brought them in, they run through the event. And guess what has happened uh, in 80% of those cases? They stayed on and became instructors, all right? Uh, the program may have lost uh, 70 bucks on that particular individual, but they gained instructors in 80% of the cases, all right? And uh, I was already there doing an apple seed anyway. So whether or not that person came in, uh, you know, that uh, was neither here nor there. That's up to you as a shoot boss to use your discretion to do that. Remember, we're trying to spread the message. Uh, we're not trying to make... Uh, a profit. We're trying to spread the message. If you can get somebody to come and they seem like a good candidate to, to becoming an instructor, then by all means, uh, do what you need to do to get them to attend. <clears throat> all right. Uh, one last thing about this is once you attend an Appleseed event, and what we're going to do, we're going to give you these skills and techniques to set you on your path to becoming a rifleman. Now, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to shoot the rifleman standards on the first weekend you attend. Lots of people do, but not everybody does. Everybody learns uh, from different directions at different paces. Not everybody does shoot to rifleman standards at every event. Actually, only probably only about, uh, I would say, between uh, 1% to 7% will shoot to rifleman standards at their first event. And... Uh, uh, who have never fired a rifle before. You will get up to 10% of the folks who uh, have previous histories of shooting will make uh, will shoot the rifling standards at an event. <clears throat> People can. You can come to an Appleseed event 
without ever having touched a rifle before, and you can shoot to rifleman standards. Uh, I've seen it done many times, so I know that it is uh, that it's a possibility. If you come to an event and you listen to the instruction and you do your best and you uh, you don't quite make it to shooting a 210 or above on the Army Qualification Test, the AQT, which is the diagnostic tool that we use to determine how effective our teaching is. If you don't shoot to rifleman standards, which is a 210 or above on the AQT, but you're determined not to give up, to stay with it until you do, then talk to your shoot boss, and uh, he can get you enrolled in the Rifleman's Opportunity Card Program. That program is one where if you pay to attend an event and at the same time uh, you apply for a membership in RWVA, which is uh, 20 bucks for a year's membership, you take the receipt for your paid weekend and for your RWVA membership to your shoot boss. You show this to him and you tell him that you want to enroll in the Rifleman's Opportunity Card Program. He'll affix a sticker to your uh, to your card to your membership card, and that will give you the opportunity to continue to attend events at no charge for one year or until you shoot to rifleman standards. Now, that's an absolutely uh, sweet deal there, all right? So if you want to do that, uh, make sure that you bring your receipt from your, uh, from your registration, from your paid attendance, and your receipt from whenever you... Uh, uh, join the RWVA, and you can do that online at the same time that you pre-register for an event. It goes to the shoot boss, and uh, he'll enroll you in the ROC program. All right, so how to get to a an event? <clears throat> As I said, go to the homepage rwva.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a list of tabs. Second one from the left says Apple Seed. Put your cursor on there. You go to drop down menu. On the drop down menu, select schedule. <clears throat> All right, that's the page that I'm on now. What we have is a weekend of July 9th and 10th that begins in Ashland, Wisconsin, followed by Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Dunbar, Wisconsin, Eureka, Kansas, Great Falls, Montana, Mariposa, California, Mayaca City, Florida, Nashville, Indiana, Ottawa, Illinois. Piru, California, Ramsar, North Carolina, Rising Fawn, Georgia, Salem, Ohio, Troop, New York, which is uh, this weekend, and uh, I'll be shoot bossing that event. I only have 900 miles to drive in the morning to make it there. Lebanon, Connecticut, Saturday, July 10th, is a one-day event. That is... Uh, Sunday, not Saturday. Saturday, I mean Sunday, July 10th in Lebanon, Connecticut is a one-day event on Sunday. All right, that takes the next weekend, the 15th and 16th is a Friday and Saturday, and that will be in Manhattan, New York. Friday and Saturday event. The regular Saturday and Sunday events on 16th and 17th. Begins in Albuquerque, New Mexico, followed by Afton, Illinois, Alton, Illinois, Augusta, Georgia, Bonfield, Illinois, Buckingham, Virginia, Byers, Colorado, Enfield, New Hampshire, Evansville, Indiana, Fountain, Colorado, Hinkley, Minnesota, Hubertus, Wisconsin, 
Leiden, Massachusetts, Mannheim, Pennsylvania, New Bremen, New York, Pequot, Ohio, Proctor, Vermont, Rosebud, Missouri, Sacramento, California, Salem, West Virginia, San Angelo, Texas, Springfield, Oregon, Wooster, Ohio, Corsegold, California, Colfax, Wisconsin. Let me back up just a second. I uh, got in a rush here. Cloverdale, Indiana, starts the July 23rd and 24th weekend. Followed by Corsegold, California, Colfax, Wisconsin, Corona, California. Crittenden, Kentucky is a one-day event, Saturday, July 23rd. That's for previous Appleseed attendees only. <clears throat> Davila, Texas on the 23rd and 24th. Gibsonburg, Ohio. Glen Helen, California. Grand Island, Nebraska. Gunnison, Colorado. Hutchinson, Kansas. Lake George, New York. Lewiston, Idaho. Lodi, Wisconsin. Montrose, Iowa. Mayaka City, Florida. New Martinsville, West Virginia, New Philadelphia, Ohio, Ottawa, Illinois, which is the second weekend of the two-weekend event, Pittsburgh, Kansas, Riley, Indiana, Sherburn, Louisiana, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Slippery Rock, Pennsylvania. That takes us to the first uh, shoot in Alaska. We've got a shoot in Alaska that uh, that Bob Zio has set up. Bob Zio is the California uh, coordinator and one of the uh, one of my buddies and one of the other master instructors, one of the original members of the group, and uh, he has set up a shoot in Chugiak, Alaska. That's right, uh, uh, west south, west northwest of. Anchorage, and uh, it's going to be a four-day event. You have the Thursday and Friday, which is July 28th and 29th, is the military uh, aspect of the program. That's where they're going to have the military coming in, and uh, they're going to be uh, putting on the apple seed for the uh, American military members uh, in that area. And then the 30th and 31st are going to be the days open to the public. Now, this is the first Alaskan shoot, and uh, Bob has also set up the first Hawaii shoot. So he's doing a great job expanding Appleseed uh, beyond our borders. <clears throat> All right. The weekend of the 30th and 31st starts off in Audubon, Pennsylvania, followed by Bellevue, Michigan, Bunnell, Florida, Calverton, New York, Charlotte, North Carolina, Chugiak, Alaska, Colebrook, Connecticut, Columbia, Maine, uh, Dulzura, California, Edgewood, New Mexico, Guilford, Connecticut, Hernando County, Florida, Knob Creek, Kentucky, Manchester, Tennessee, Medical Lake, Washington, Nathanee, Indiana, Palmerton, Pennsylvania, Perrier, Tennessee, Rama, Colorado, San Luis Obispo, California, Wilmington, Ohio, and Winterset, Iowa. All right, that takes us uh, just about a full month ahead. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I want to thank uh, Bob again. 
for the work he's done in expanding uh, the program beyond the borders uh, of the continental United States and getting the Alaska and Hawaii shoots set up. And uh, I encourage you guys to to be pushing uh, as hard as he is and continuing to put new locations on the board and getting new shoots set up, bringing the program uh, or spreading the program and pushing it further and further because <clears throat> the Appleseed Project is, uh, I believe it's tremendously important. Or I never would have put as much of my life into it as I have. And believe me, uh, there's there's been a great deal of time and effort I put into the program. And not just me, my family has too because you know they get uh, they're attached to me and they get drug into this into the things that I do and uh, like it or not and at first uh, they weren't too happy with it because they didn't understand it uh, but now they do now they they're I can't I can't tell you that they're always 100% happy with me being gone and doing events and stuff like that I'm sure they would like it if I spent more time uh, with them but at the same time. I feel that it's a, a very important organization with a very important mission. Now, for us to spread the word uh, and to open people's eyes up to what is going on in the nation is a very important thing. And I'm not telling you that we are some kind of, that the Appleseed Project is a uh, is an organization that's going to talk to you about the problems in America and what you can do to fix them. Because that's not what we do. What we do is we bring you out to an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event. We get you to set yourself a goal of of improving your rifle marksmanship. And then we show you how to do that. And you do do it. You do improve your rifle marksmanship. And the logical follow-on then is for you to ask yourself what's next. What other goals can I set for myself? At the same time, we talked to you about the men and women who at the beginning of this nation faced great hardships in order that we today would have the freedoms and liberties that we have. And we ask you to think about if what is currently going on in America, if you if you think that this is what they had in mind. And if not, do you? Or do you not think that you have some responsibility in making things right? And and if you've listened to the stuff that we've told you, if you've listened to us tell the story, the story of the three strikes of the match, of the men and women at Lexington Green, at the North Bridge in Concord, about the folks along Battle Road back to Boston, about they th- what they thought about this nation and about why they did what they did. If you've thought about that, then you know that the answer is that you have to do something. You 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 don't have any choice. You you have a debt that you owe to those who have come before. And there's no way that you can pay that debt backwards. You're going to have to pay it forward. You're going to have to make sure that you're doing everything that you can 
in order to preserve the liberties and freedoms that living in this nation affords you. Hopefully, after thinking about it, after listening to what we had to say about going through a weekend, you'll decide that that this is something that that fits you. And you'll decide to become an instructor with the program, a mentor uh, to folks who are coming after you, a preserver of the freedoms and liberties that this nation holds for you. We hope that's what will happen. And, uh, and in a great many cases, that's what does happen. That's why we keep doing this. All right. Uh, we talked uh, about, last uh, last time we talked, we talked about how the invasion of uh, the South, about the, the second invasion of the South, and about the importance of uh, of several of the battles there, most notably Waxhaws and uh, and then the Battle of Kings Mountain, and uh, that was a very important part of the the war in the South. And uh, and before I get started on this again, let me give you the uh, the caller numbers again. If you'd like to <clears throat> if you'd like to call in, you're welcome to do so. If you have questions about what we're talking about. If you'd like for me to clarify anything or uh, that I'm speaking about, or if you want to make comments or uh, or suggestions or anything else, then you're welcome to call in. Uh, number three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. Give your information to the call screener, and uh, it'll get you on board and uh, get you uh, get you uh, into the queue there. <clears throat> All right, tonight what we're going to talk about is uh, the Battle of Oriskany and how it fits into the uh, how it fits into the scheme of things. And the way that it fits is that, uh, let me first preface this. Uh, several weeks ago we talked about the Battle of Lake Champlain, right? You remember us talking about that. We talked about how uh, Benedict Arnold, had decided to fight uh, General Carleton along on uh, Lake Champlain. Carleton was going to invade uh, New York from Canada. And the only thing that stood between him and in the invasion at that point in 76 was Benedict Arnold. And what did Arnold do? He built a navy. I mean, he sent out and he had folks come in uh, carpenters and blacksmith and shipwrights, and they actually built a navy so that he could fight General Carleton on Lake Champlain because there was there were no overland routes they could take. They had to go by water, and uh, so he built a navy and he fought Carleton there on Lake Champlain. Now, what this did was that him uh, Arnold building his navy caused Carlton to have to build one too. So, and of course, uh, there was no, uh, there were no Lowe's, there were no Home Depot. You couldn't go out and, and buy lumber and stuff to build your navy. You you had to cut down trees and mill them there with hand saws in order to make a plank to make uh, the ship. They did that. That cost a couple of months. The battle itself was a defeat 
for Arnold, but that didn't matter. Because of the fact that he'd set this in motion, uh, he, he burned up a couple of months of Carlton's time and the invading army for Canada. That caused winter to set in. By the time Carlton defeated Arnold on Lake Champlain, it was winter. The winter had begun. He couldn't uh, begin his invasion because he, he couldn't make an invasion in winter. The, uh, the waterways were frozen, and there were no roads. So Arnold effectively stopped him. All right, now we're going to jump forward a year to 1777. Now, now they're going to try the invasion uh, again. And this, is, this invasion was given to Gentleman Johnny, John Burgoyne, General John Burgoyne. It was going to be staged in a two-pronged attack, which they were hoping would actually be a three-pronged attack. Uh, what he's going to do is he was going to split New England away from the other colonies by gaining control of New York's Hudson River Valley. Now, the main thrust was coming south across Lake Champlain under Burgoyne's command, and uh, the second thrust was being led by Colonel Barry St. Ledger. And this thrust of the, uh, the attack was coming down through the Mohawk River Valley. They were going to meet Burgoyne's army near, near Albany, and they were hoping then that Howe's forces would, uh, would sally forth and meet them, bringing forth the third prong of the attack, crushing the resistance uh, in New York, and then splitting the colonies off. Now, had this been successful, this could very well have been the, very, the end of the American Revolution. <clears throat> but, but it wasn't. Okay. What we have here now, one I'm going to be reading to you from two different uh, sources, and uh, the book that I've been reading to you off and on uh, for the last couple of months is The Spirit of '76, and uh, that's edited uh, edited uh, by Commager and Morris, and it's put out by Castle Books. And uh, like I said, the reason that I read these letters to you is because. The letters are the actual, they're the actual bottom line, real history. That's where all the rest of the history comes from. When you be, read a book on the American Revolution, the guy there that is writing the story of the American Revolution or about the Battle of Oriskany or Waxhaws or Kings Mountain, he's telling you the story of the American Revolution. But the way he got that information is because he read the letters uh, or the diaries or the histories other battles that the men who were there experiencing it wrote. All right, so what I've done, I'm just jumping past that. I'm jumping straight down to the letters so that you're getting the information straight from the folks uh, rather than somebody's idea about uh, about uh, how the battle was run, etc. All right, so the book is Spirit of 76. <clears throat> uh and I'll preface this again with this. Uh, in the winter of uh, 1777, General Burgoyne, who was known to, he was known to his troops as Gentleman Johnny, he returned to London uh, after playing a negligible role in the Boston and New York campaigns. He had advanced his social position by his marriage uh, to the daughter of the Earl of Derby. He distinguished himself in the 
campaigns of Portugal, and then in the latter years of the Seven Years' War, he kind of got himself a reputation uh, by his stand in Parliament against the American uh, question, is how they put it, the question. <clears throat> All right. The three-pronged attack to isolate New England provided for his main army to push southward down Lake Champlain and the upper Hudson, and an auxiliary force to operate from Oswego to the Mohawk Valley, and then a strong force to be dispatched by Howe, by, uh, Howe up the Hudson. King George comment in a manuscript in his own hand in the British Museum that the force from Canada must join him, and he's talking about Howe at, all of, at Albany, reveals that the monarch originally favored Burgoyne's coordinated knockout blow. So did Germain at first, but... Uh, but the head of the colonial department approved the plan and gave command of the expedition to Burgoyne instead of Carlton. Remember, Carlton was a guy who had uh, just fought uh, Arnold at the end of the year before. Before leaving Canada, Burgoyne saw Howe's letter to Carlton stating that uh, unless Washington attempted to join the Northern Army, that he could give Burgoyne no help. So, uh, because and the reason I read this to you is because, uh, you know, there's always been controversy on whether uh, Burgoyne is saying that he didn't make it because uh, because he ha- he asked Howe for help at the last minute, and Howe told him he couldn't help him. Well, Howe always, from the very beginning, General Howe said that unless Washington uh, attempted to join the Northern Army, that he wasn't going to help him. All right? <clears throat> Okay, had Burgoyne's plan succeeded, it would have been a grave blow to the Patriot cause, but it failed. And with the failure, an entire British army vanished. Burgoyne's disaster may be properly considered the turning point of the war. It's true that six more years lay ahead until peace was made, but it it was very apparent now that the capture and the holding in the, the interior of the American continent would involve an effort far beyond the resources of the British to achieve. And this was certainly clearly the case once France entered the war, uh, an involvement undoubtedly precipitated by the collapse of Burgoyne's grand design, the three-pronged attack. So what you have here is you have the Burgoyne's plan uh, to invade from uh, the Hudson, you have uh, uh, the uh, uh, the second prong going down the Mohawk Valley, and then the third prong, which is supposed to be how coming coming up the Hudson, trapping the American army, cutting off the uh, New England colonies, and uh, and what would have been in effect the end of the war. There, but because of this, because of the re- the, the way that it went. It destroyed a whole British army, which was there in the north, and because of the success of it, it it kind of greased the wheels so that France could become involved. Uh, But for all intents and purposes, this campaign, the Burgoyne campaign, was really the deciding, uh, one of the deciding battles. Now, you can keep going and saying, well, since this one doesn't work, then the next battle of such and such uh, it was a deciding battle, and, and they all were, but 
this was the battle that which if Burgoyne had succeeded, it more than probably would have been the end of the American Revolution. Uh, other than than Washington, who had made it clear that he planned uh, retrograde actions, pulling back uh, farther and farther to the west. Because remember, at this time, nobody knew how big America was until Lewis and Clark set out. Nobody had any real idea how big the Americans were. Uh, And certainly, uh, they had no idea in England of the vastness of the American territory. It was huge. Uh, There was was no way that even a million British regulars were going to subdue North America by force. And at the time, 40,000 troops were all they could muster uh, completely as their army under arms in all of their, uh, uh, in all of their colonies and kingdoms. <clears throat> all right. Uh, so in this time, and uh, one of the other things I want to, to bring into to this right now, we've got uh, 51 minutes left, so we've still got plenty of time, uh, is the fact that this is the beginning of of the the unleashing of the American Indians against the colonists. Now, both sides used uh, the Native Americans uh they were going to use them for whatever they could, whatever uh, benefits they could get from them. But by far, the English were the were one of the first to really push and use them. Uh, they they were recruiting them in uh, to the British regular forces uh, as independent fighting units. They were offering uh, money. Uh, they were paying bounties on scalps and telling them that uh, if they would help England, then England would stop the colonies from expanding. Uh, you know, with any, it doesn't matter where you are, if, you, if your colony continues to grow, there's only a finite amount of land available for it unless you expand outwards. And to the east, the expansion was limited uh, by the Atlantic Ocean. They couldn't expand that way. They were going to have to go west. The expansion west would push them into Indian territories. And the uh, the English, the British, were telling the Indians <clears throat> that if they helped them, that, the, that England would stop American colonies from expanding any further westward. And the British, the, I mean, the England did not want American colonies expanding to the west. If they expanded to the west, that would put them out of reach uh, for trade goods from England. If if they expanded uh, 500 miles into the west, then they're really not close enough to the coast where it would benefit them to buy something that was going to come by boat 500 miles away. Why wouldn't they just uh, build their own forge, build their own uh, lumber mill, build their own uh, printing presses, etc., which is what they ended up doing. But the but England didn't want them doing that because America was supposed to be buying all their all their finished goods from England. We shipped out raw materials and they shipped back finished goods to us, and that was uh, basically our relationship. So 
the Indians were brought in on the, the side of England uh, to stop the expansion. <clears throat> All right, let me read you a a quick uh, a quick narrative of this. On June 17, 1777, Burgoyne moved south from St. John's to Lake Champlain with a mixed force of British and German infantry, number, numbering some 7,000. A small force of British and Hanau artillerymen, 400 Indians, a handful of Canadians and Tories, along with a huge baggage train of 138 guns. Available to his expedition for transportation on the lake was the Navy used by Carleton in the Champlain campaign of the previous year, including ships captured from Arnold after the Battle of Valcour Bay. Now, the campaign started off in a cloud of oratory and rhetoric released by Gentleman Johnny, and on June 23rd, he made a speech to his Indian allies and, in the, and issued a bombastic proclamation. In the speech, he cautioned the Indians to conduct humane warfare. Now, nobody, nobody in their right mind, even at that time, thought that the Indians were going to conduct humane warfare. They, they were called savages. Uh, they were feared and reviled as savages. Now, this prompted uh, back in England, even in England, I'm not even talking about the, the colonies yet, back in England, Edmund Burke uh, promptly ridiculed this speech in a debate in the House of Commons, exclaiming, this is a quote from uh, Edmund Hill, suppose there was a riot on Tower Hill, what would the keeper of his majesty's lions do? Would he not fling open the den of the wild beast and then address them thus? My gentle lions, my humane bears, my tender-hearted hyenas, go forth. But I exhort you, as you are Christians and members of civil society, to take care not to hurt any man, woman, or child. Uh, so, uh, obviously... Nobody, uh, nobody had any doubts as to what this was going to do. It was considered barbaric, inhumane, and it caused no end of troubles uh, to England because even though the uh, Native Americans were used by first the English and then also the American colonists, there is, going back and looking through the history, there is no real plus uh, added to either of the forces that were added by the uh, by the inclusion of Native Native Americans in this war on either side, it didn't really help either side because they were too uh, they were too independent and they they didn't take orders and and they were more than happy to do stuff that was going to make anyone who used them look bad. Uh, but Burgoyne proclaimed commending that uh, justice and clemency of the king, but warning that he would execute the vengeance of the state against the willful outcast. This was greeted with especially shrill catcalls, both in London and America. Most widely publicized of all was the satirical reports, was the parody and counterblast attributed to the Pennsylvania poet Francis Hopkinson. Burgoyne soon dropped the quill and plunged ahead with his lumbering baggage train into the forest. 
All right. Uh, and so he did. And the, if you'd like to read it, uh, all you have to do is look up uh, uh, Francis Hopkinson and uh, Burgoyne. You can Google that, and they'll give you the uh, the the satirical poem uh, that he wrote. I'm not going to read it to you here, but uh, <clears throat> he wrote uh, a satirical poem about it. <clears throat> now, uh, I've talked to you before about uh, about the way that the wars were actually fought in uh, in the in the colonies in North America, and how the the forces in uniform, having one side uh, the redcoats dressed all prim and proper on one side, and the continental blues on the other, and having them opposing each other with uh, uh, with uh, cannons and uh, and very formally and uh, drum and fife, etc. That was that was not the norm. Now, as the war progressed, uh, it became a little more common. But those battles were not uh, the norm of the battles fought. The uh, the battles were fought by men and women uh, against folks in neighboring cities and towns in their regular uh, clothes. And a lot of times it was fought uh, as any partisan-type wars fought. It was a chance for folks to settle old grievances or for the haves to go after the have-nots or for uh, for any one group to go after another group. And this, this has happened in every single war, and it happens especially in civil wars or wars of revolution. And that's what happened here. What you have is you have the uh, uh, the colonists. Uh, you've got mixed forces, <clears throat> and while Burgoyne and his group were moving down the uh, uh, the Hudson Valley, you've got another group moving down the Mohawk Valley, and uh, this group was a mixed force of uh, about 1,800 men. These were mostly Tories and Indians under Colonel Barry St. Ledger. And uh, they were pushing eastward from Fort Oswego to Lake Ontario uh, to rendezvous with Burgoyne in Albany. Uh, On the 3rd of August, St. Ledger reached Fort Stanwix. Now, uh, it was renamed Fort Shooter not long after that. Now, the fort is still standing there, or the rebuilt fort. This is on the Mohawk River, uh, the present site of Rome, New York. And the fall of that fortress would have opened the gates to Albany some 110 110 miles away and trapped the American army in between the two British expeditions. Now, why uh, why was this? such an important site. Why was Fort Stanwyck such an important site? Well, it was because as I mentioned earlier, there were no roads. Uh, there were very few roads at this time in the American colony. I mean, you had some roads, some trails, horse paths, uh, wagon cart uh, trails and stuff, but you didn't have uh, a great number of roads. And 
Instead, a great deal of material traveled by waterways. Now, this was one of the few areas where you could go from the Great Lakes to uh, the Atlantic Ocean by water. Uh, and you could go the whole way except for just one, uh, one little area where you'd have to do a portage to get from one river to the other. I mean, you'd have to walk over land. And uh, this is the fort, and which was the fort, that guarded that portage. So the main waterway from the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean was presided over by Sandwich, by the fort there. And that's why it was important at that location. Now, also, if the two groups would have met up, then, yeah, they would have trapped they, the, uh, the those two prongs of the attack would have trapped the main body uh, of the uh, colonial forces between them, and and it was a great enough force that it uh, it more than probably would have destroyed them. Now, here, St. Ledger encountered his first serious resistance. Now, he had not reckoned with the fighting spirit of uh, Colonel Peter Gainsvoort and 750 men who helped him, who manned the stronghold, nor on the caution and restlessness of his Indian allies. On August 6th, General Nicholas Herkimer, with some 800 militiamen marching to the fort's relief, was caught in an ambush at Oriskany by a force of Indians and Tories led by the Mohawk chief, Joseph Brandt. Suffering at the outset of the Battle of Wound that was to prove fatal, Herkimer drew his men together on high ground and fought back fiercely. Total disaster was averted when the Indians were alarmed by firing from Fort Schuler, where the garrison uh, had made a sortie against the British camp, broke off the engagement. The Indians, as the account of Lieutenant Byrd reveals, had already proved reckless and unreliable. Herkimer managed to retreat eastward with less than half of his original strength. Schuler now dispatched uh, Benedict Arnold from Stillwater with a force of 1,000 volunteers to relieve the desperately besieged garrison. Even though his men never caught up with the British expedition, Arnold was able to raise the siege and rout St. Ledger. Uh, and part of the story here is uh, there was an eccentric, half-mad inhabitant of the Mohawk Valley named Han Joost Schuler, who was His father was actually a cousin to General Schuler, and his mother was Herkimer's sister. Anyway, he was part of the Tory group. And he was he was crazy. Uh, he was captured by Arnold's men while he was attempting uh, a recruiting rally behind the American lines. He was sentenced to death as a spy, but he was let off on condition that he used his special powers among the red men. <laughs> and his special powers was that he was crazy and. Uh, he was notorious for his rantings and ravings, and as a mad person will do, he was notorious for these. And because of his crazy rantings and ravings, the Indians considered him uh, kind of like a prophet. You know, he, was, he had been touched by God, and he was his craziness came as a result of the Great Spirit, you know, who had touched him. They considered crazy people to be directly touched by God, and, and in many cases, prophets. Anyway, 
he was let off. They weren't. They said that they would not hang him if he would go to St. Ledger's Indians and uh, and tell them that uh, that the forces that were getting ready to approach them uh, vastly outnumbered the Indians and uh, and that they would have no chance of winning. And the Indians believed him. They ended up taking off. This seriously, uh, this seriously would have weakened uh, uh, St. Ledger's forces. All right. <clears throat> okay. Uh, let's get to. This is Colonel Marinus Willett, uh, who was uh, Ganswort's second in command. Now, let me give you a little bit of perspective on this. The folks at uh, Fort Stanwix, uh, as soon as they heard that the, uh, the the fort there had been abandoned, I told you it had been built uh, to guard the portage uh, on the route from the Great Lakes to the, to, uh, the coastline. But because it was so far away and uh, and they were in a period of relative peace uh, since the uh, French and Indian War had ended, the uh, England, the British regulars had left the fort. They'd, you know, they just abandoned it. And the fort had gone into disrepair. Nobody had worked on it or anything else. Well, as soon as the folk there in New York had heard about the Declaration of Independence, they immediately went back and took possession of the fort and tried as quickly as possible possible to bring it up to a defendable uh, uh, kind of a defendable situation, and they did. And then they manned the force. Then they heard that uh, St. Ledger, that his prong of the attack was coming, and uh, and then the uh, 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 General Gainsworth's uh, folks got together to defend it. Well, as they were under siege there at the time. They asked for help, and uh, General Herkimer got a group of his folks together, and they started march- marching to relieve the siege of Sandwich. Right before they got there, and there was supposed to be a signal. When they got close enough to the fort, uh, they were going to fire their cannons, and there would be an answering fire from the fort. And then the folks, the troops at the fort would sally out from the fort and attack at the same time uh, that the Herkimer's forces did. They would link up, and this would give a large enough force that they could uh, they could bust the siege there at Sandwich. Well, as as the folks were approaching, as uh, Herkimer's forces were approaching, and they were uh, they were in a long drawn out column, as they were approaching. They were ambushed, and uh, and the folks from the fort. Uh, there was a, there was a lot of questions about whether they heard the uh, the the signal to attack or not. Uh, but the uh, the folks from the fort did not come out to attack, and uh, Perkimer's forces were being. Uh, who are being pretty savage there. <clears throat> and this is known, the Battle of Rutkini is known 
as one of the absolute bloodiest uh, battles that uh, was fought during the American Revolution, and not because uh, not because so many people were killed, although there was a great uh, number of folks killed. It's because of, of the fighting. It was so intense and so hand-to-hand. Now, I've been there. I've visited the battlefield at Oriskany, uh three times now because uh, I think that the battle is a very, very interesting one, and it's a very important one. And I've gone there several times, too, and I've read about it. And, and of course, I've gamed it myself trying to figure out, uh, you know, how I would do it and, and how it would work out and what went wrong here and, uh, the grass there, you know, is very, very tall. You're walking down into a valley, and it has the native grasses that are six and seven feet tall uh, down at the stream. Now, the stream where they were ambushed is a very tiny stream. It's only uh, like uh, two feet across and a foot deep. And uh, as the men were marching to relieve the fort, they stopped at that stream to get a drink. When they did, the Indians who were waiting, they were supposed to let the whole group, the whole column, get well within the ambush point before they attacked. But the Indians who were waiting there, they couldn't wait. They saw the guys coming up there. They got within range. And uh, they went ahead and began the the attack. And... Uh, <clears throat> And when they did, the folks from the fort didn't uh, come out to help them. But what they did was they they were fighting, and the Indians who were attacking had been told they weren't even using their uh, their firearms to attack. What they did was they would show themselves. Uh, one of the uh, patriot when the patriot folks would shoot. Then another folk, then another of the Indians would jump up and close with them with the tomahawk and the knife. And they would uh, kill that, that uh, soldier because, you know, he couldn't uh, load his musket fast enough. Well, there was a heavy downpour, a heavy rain, and this caused a lull in the fighting. And when it did, uh, Herkimer drew his forces back up into a, a circle even though he was mortally wounded at the time. He drew his forces back into a circle, and they immediately revised their plans for battle. And what they did now was they paired each of the fighters up in groups, uh, two or three men to a group. Now, instead of fighting individually, having one guy fire the musket, and, uh, and then him being killed by the guy with the tomahawk, what they did is uh, they'd have the three folks together. And the one guy would fire the, his musket. The Indians would attack, thinking him unprepared now. As soon as they came up and they showed themselves, the second guy would shoot on them while the first or the third people, persons uh, fighting there, were reloading. And uh, the Indians who would come along with St. Ledger, they had been promised uh, an easy victory, much uh, many scalps, and also uh, much contraband that they would be able to, uh, you know, they'd be able to claim as their own and sell the booty, uh, the same way that uh, you know pirates considered it. Anyway, they had been told this, and instead, what they found was that they were losing a great number 
of warriors in this battle. Both sides were. Now, it's not like they weren't killing a lot of folks, too, because they were. They were killing a great many uh, of the folks that fought. Uh, Herkimer's force ran about uh, uh, a little over 900 folks. Now, whenever he left the field that day, they were going to be close to uh, uh, a full third of that force killed or wounded. And uh, there was also a great number of the Native Americans who had been fighting with the British who had been killed. <clears throat> this upset them to a great deal. Not only that, but after the folks at Fort Stanwyck, they finally got word that the battle would be gone. <clears throat> they sent out a force to attack, and they started chasing them. Well, they chased them to the Indians' campsite. When the Indians were fighting Herkimer's forces, the folks at the fort attacked the campsite. So now they sh they killed all of the uh, the Indians left guarding the campsite, and they took all of the Indians' stuff there. So the Indians who had left their campsite to go and attack Herkimer's forces, their camp had been raided. All their food, all their extra uh, weapons, all of their extra clothes, everything was taken. The rest was burnt. So now, not only did they, was it not an easy battle, did they not get as many scouts as they wanted, was there not enough booty, all of their stuff had been destroyed. Put on top of this, uh, the fact that uh, uh, Han Yost had been captured and then his life had been spared as long as he went and told the rest of the Indians that, uh, that they were in an uh, untenable position and they believed him and left. This ended up destroying St. Ledger's prong of the attack. Without Ledger's prong of the attack, uh, Burgoyne's prong of the attack failed. Because of those two failures, Howe's men never left. The third prong never came in. The whole invasion from Canada was a failure. And like I said before, their failure... The invasion from Canada, the failure to trap and destroy uh, the American forces there, led to the French entering uh, the American Revolutionary War on the side of the American colonists, which ultimately led uh, several years later to the defeat of Cornwallis at Yorktown, which effectively ended the war. There were another two years left after that where they had to decide on terms but that was effectively the end of the war there, and that was set in motion by the victory at uh, uh, in the Mohawk and Hudson Valleys. <clears throat> All right, uh, this is uh, from Colonel Marinus Willett. He says, about 11 o'clock Wednesday, August the 6th, three men got into the fort. Uh, they brought a letter from a General Harkaman, uh, this is supposed to be Herkimer, of Tryon County Militia, advising us that he was at Eriska, which is eight miles away, with part of the militia, and proposed to force his way to the fort for our relief. In order to render him what service we could in this march, it was agreed that I should make a sally forth from the fort with 250 men, consisting of one half of Grandsworts and one half Massachusetts men and one field piece, an iron three-pound cannon. It's a very small one. 
Nothing could be more fortunate than this enterprise. We totally routed two of the enemy's encampments, destroyed all of the provisions that were in them, brought off upwards of 50 brass kettles, more than 150 blankets, with a quantity of muskets, tomahawks, spears, ammunition, clothing, deer skins, a variety of Indian affairs, and five colors. Uh, by the colors, they mean flag. The Indians took chiefly to the woods, the rest of the troops then at their post on the river. I was happy in preventing the men from scalping the Indians, being desirous, if possible, to teach even the savages humanity, but the men were much better employed and kept in excellent order. From these prisoners, some Oneida Indians, we received the first accounts of General Hartman's militia being ambushed on their march and of a severe battle they had had with them about two hours before, which gave reason to think they had, for the present, given up their design of marching to the fort. That's true. Now, also, one of the things I want to, to mention in here is that for 300 years, the the six, the, uh, the six nations, the, all the Indian tribes had been at peace, had been at war with them for 300 years. Now, at the Battle of Oriskany, the Hurons and the Mohawks uh, and the Oneidas, for the first time in 300 years, the peace is broken, and now they're at war. The, uh, the different tribes within the Six Nations are at war. And listen, just as I told you a while ago that, uh, that the colonies or, or the English, neither one really achieved much benefit at all from the Indians' involvement in the war, I'll tell you this, that the Indians, certainly the majority of them, uh, made their lot much worse, if, if, you, if, if there was a way to do that, they made their lot much worse by fighting on the side of the British because eventually the colonists won. Uh, they achieved their independence. And when they did, they looked back at their enemies, which were uh, all of those tribes that did not ally themselves with the colonists, and and they remained enemies uh, for the next uh, uh, 100 and... Uh, 140, 50 years there. All right. Uh, this is uh, the Journal of James Thatcher. He was a doctor with the Continental Army. August 1777. An object which cannot be accomplished by force is often obtained by means of a stratagem. Lieutenant Colonel John Brooks, an intelligent officer from Massachusetts, being in advance of Arnold's party, which was marching to relieve Fort Schuler, with a small detachment, fortunately found one of one Major Butler, a noted officer among the Indians, endeavoring to influence the inhabitants in their favor, and he was immediately secured. A man also by the name of Kuler. Uh, and what he was trying to write was Schuler. This is the Han Yost Schuler, the crazy guy, who was proprietor of a handsome estate in the vicinity, was taken up as a spy. Colonel Brooks proposed that he should be employed as a deceptive messenger to spread the alarm and induce the enemy to retreat. General Arnold soon after arrived and approved the scheme of Colonel Brooks. It was a 
accordingly agreed that Kuehler should be liberated and his estate secured to him on the condition that he would return to the enemy and make such exaggerated report of General Arnold's force as to alarm them and put them to flight. Several friendly Indians being present, one of their headmen advised that Kuehler's once again, he's just writing Kuehler. It's supposed to be Shooter. Kuehler's coat should be shot through in two or three places to add credibility to his story. <laughs> so they're saying, hey, the Indians said this. They said, hey, uh, take his jacket off and shoot and shoot it up some so that it'll look like he was, uh, you know, they that he barely escaped with his life and uh, they shot his clothes through. Matters being thus adjusted, the imposter proceeded directly to the Indian camp, where he was well known, and informed their warriors that Major Butler was taken, and that he himself narrowly escaped several shots having passed through his coat, and that General Arnold, with a vast force, was advancing rapidly towards them. In aid of the project, a friendly Indian followed and arrived about an hour after with a confirmation of Schuler's report. The stratagem was successful. The Indians instantly determined to quit their ground and make their escape. Nor was it in the power of St. Ledger and Sir John Johnson, with all their art of persuasion, to prevent it. When St. Ledger remonstrated with them, the reply of the chiefs was, When we marched down, you told us there would be no fighting for us Indians. We might go down and smoke our pipes, but now... A number of our warriors have been killed, and you mean to sacrifice us. The consequence was that St. Ledger, finding himself deserted by his Indians to the number of seven or eight hundred, deemed his situation so hazardous that he decamped in the greatest hurry and confusion, leaving his tents with most of his artillery and stores in the field. General Arnold, with his detachment, was now at liberty to return to the main army and Stillwater, and thus they had clipped the right wing of General Burgoyne. In the evening, while on the retreat, St. Ledger and Sir John got into a warm altercation, incriminating each other for the ill success of their expedition. Two sashims, uh, these are the elderly Uh, like chiefs, observing this, resolved to have a laugh at their expense. In their front was a bog of clay and mud, and they directed a young warrior to loiter in the rear, and then on a sudden run as if alarmed, calling out, They are coming! They are coming! On hearing this, the two commanders, in fright, took to their heels and rushing forward, crashed... uh, splashed into the bog, (laughs) falling down and sticking in the mud. And the men threw away their packs and hurried off. This and other jokes were several times repeated during the night for many miles. Now, that's just sad, isn't it? Uh, First, uh, through the great use of uh, intelligence uh, and deception, uh, Arnold and his forces were able to uh, bleed off uh, almost 900 men from St. Ledger, making it impossible for him to hold his positions. 
So they had to take off, and uh, and their prong of the attack was failed. Not only that, but now to add to that, you have these these two <laughs> these two Indian leaders who were supposed to be on their side uh, coming up with this strategy to play a joke on uh, St. Ledger and Sir John Johnson by having a young warrior coming, running up, screaming, they're coming, they're coming. And, uh, and these two guys run and fall into, uh, into a bog, into a big mud hole. Well, <clears throat> that shows uh, the importance of the Battle of Oriskany. And, uh, uh, the the end result was the failure uh, of all of the invasion in. Now, Herkimer, who, as I said, he was he was wounded. He had been shot in the leg right at the beginning of the battle. He had uh, still. He was able to command his men, and you can't say that he won the battle, although he remained in possession of the field. Uh, you can't say that he won, because his losses were much greater uh, than the forces who attacked him. Uh, but he he did hold the field, and he did fight the folks into a standstill. Now, he he ended up uh, being taken home, and uh, the wound in his leg was got worse and worse. And uh, what they should have done, because as as you've probably heard, there wasn't a whole lot of things that they could do at that time to save you uh, from certain kinds of wounds. If you had received a wound and uh, and the ball had gone through the flesh and broken bone then there was usually not much they could do because, uh, you know, nowadays we have x-rays and everything else, and we can open it up and we can look at it and we can see uh, the ball in there or, or any pieces of lead or uh, or any bits of broken bone, and they can remove all of that, and they can uh, uh, close it up nice and tight and uh, then uh, fill you up with antibiotics, and you can make it. Back then... Uh, you've got to remember, you've got this huge half-inch to uh, seven-eighths of an inch size round lead ball coming and hitting you. And it's uh, it's traveling at such a speed that when it goes into you, a lot of times it carries all of the fabric that was ahead of it. It puts a hole in your clothes, but it takes all of that fabric and shoves it into you. And now you've got a big chunk of cotton or deer hide or anything else stuck in there with you. With it, they can get the ball out, but they don't get all of the stuff that was forced into the wound out. And there are no antibiotics. So, and especially if it hits a bone and breaks the bone into pieces, then even if you get the ball out, you've got those pieces of broken bone inside your skin. Once the bone is broken up inside you, then the individual pieces not connected to uh, veins and arteries, not served by the body are going to die. When those pieces die, then they become infectious and it turns into gangrene. And 
a lot of times the people didn't want to to have a leg cut off. They said, let's see if it works. And, you know, a lot of times it did. A lot of times people would be shot and have a bone broken, and they lived. But the majority of times they didn't. And in this case, Herkimer's leg got an infection. Well, he finally decided to have it amputated, but guess what? Once your body has an infection in it, uh, it's hard... It's going to be hard to fix it, but they amputated it, all right? And uh, and a little while later, they had to cut off some more. And then also, from what I understand, uh, reading the history of this, <clears throat> that once the, once Herkimer was, uh, had had the, the multiple operations and he was still ill, the surgeon said, you know, what we need to do, what we really need to do now is we need to bleed him, which is one of the procedures at that time that was used to, uh, that surgeons used to try and heal. And that is, they would open up a vein or an artery uh, and bleed out the, quote, bad blood. Well, listen, if you're already sick and somebody pops open a vein or uh, an artery on you and they draw out uh, a pint of blood, that's not a help. That's uh, That tremendously weakens uh, a system that's already under siege, and that's what it did. It ended up killing him, and he died. Uh, but uh, but it also set in motion, as I said, what was to begin the turning point. Uh, New York no long, was no longer going to be invaded from the north. There were continual campaigns in that area, and they were eventually fought uh, close to a standstill, and then the war would shift to the south. But I encourage you to read. I know that on the site, uh, on the Appleseed Project uh, forum, I believe I posted there uh, a seven or eight-page story from uh, one of my trips to the Battle of Oriskany. And I encourage you to go and read it. It's a a story I wrote from a a couple of years ago. And uh, uh, it uh, has a a great deal of, uh, of information in it. Too. Most of all, I encourage you once you uh, once you've heard some of the history from uh, from during the show. I encourage you, uh, even if you're while you're sitting there listening to me, if you're at your computer and you're sitting there listening to me talk about the Battle of Oriskany, Google it, grab it, and start reading about it. Learn all that you can about the men and women. Uh, all across the colonies in the Americas at the time, and what they did, because every every time you open or you click on someone's name, uh, on an American patriot's name, uh, and you read the story of what they did, you're going to be amazed. Uh, you're going to be amazed by uh, by the amount of uh, uh, by the courage. Of that character, uh, by the uh, by their bravery and by their sacrifice, these are the folks who have come before. These are the folks who have done done everything, uh, who have sacrificed a great deal, including their lives, so that you and your family and those who come after you could have the things that you do. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to to ensure 
that the freedoms and liberties that living this nation affords you, uh, that they remain, that they are not eroded, uh, that they're not lost forever. Uh, you're going to have to figure out something to do because doing nothing is, to me, is worse than doing something evil. And I'm sure you guys have heard that the, the saying that all that is required for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. You know, there's there's always going to be a push by evil. There's It's always going to be there. It's not like you can say, well, uh, we're going to fight this battle, and at the end of this battle, at the end of old WW1, World War One, the war to end all wars, we are going to have vanquished evil once and for all, and it will be put to, to rest. It will be thrown out uh, and destroyed. Evil is always going to be there. There's always going to be someone, something that's going to want to control you, to make you do its bidding. It's going to to want, uh, at the end of the day, to have what it's going to boil down, is want to hurt you and to enslave you. And I'm not talking uh, tinfoil hat stuff. I'm just talking about the basic nature of man. And how do we know this? We know this from history. We know this from thousands of years of recorded history, that that is the nature uh, of evil. You can do nothing, and evil will win. It will. Or you can do something to slow it down and to stop it. And uh, I'm not here to tell you what that something is, all right? You're going to need to figure out what that something is yourself. You're going to need to figure out how you fit into this picture, how you fit into the solution of ensuring that the freedoms and liberties that you go to bed with tonight are still there in the morning. You're going to have to figure this out. Now, we can help. We'll be glad to help by giving you a boost at a Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship Weekend. We'll be glad to talk to you about it. We'll be glad to put you in touch with uh, with other folks who will be glad to help you. We'll be glad to talk uh, with you about it. We'll be glad to sign your name up as a member of the instructor cadre with the Appleseed Project so you can get in front of a group of people uh, on the weekend. You can share a, an, a absolutely wonderful weekend of rifle marksmanship and fellowship with other Americans and tell the story and get other folks awakened, get other folks uh, uh, clued in on what they can do. Or you can do nothing. And if you do nothing, I guarantee you, I guarantee you that at some point uh, you will reap the benefits of that whirlwind. And if it's not you, it will be those who come after you. That will be the legacy that you live for your kids, you leave for your kids and your grandkids. And I don't want that. I, I don't want that uh, for my children. And uh, 
So we're asking for you folks uh, to come to an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship Weekend. Once again, you can find out how to get to one by going to rwva.org and uh, looking at the tab across the top. The second one from the left says Appleseed. Put your cursor on that. You've got a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. Find yourself an Appleseed event. Go to the event. Listen to what the folks had to say. And then it's either for you or it's not. And if it's for you, great. Welcome aboard. Welcome to the show. And if it's not, fine. No problem. But find something that is for you. Find something that's going to work for you. Because because doing nothing, refusing to acknowledge a problem, doesn't make it go away. Like I said, all that's required for uh, for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Don't to be one of the folks doing nothing. Find a way to get involved, and uh, and we'll be glad to help you with that. At the same time that uh, that we're giving you uh, a chance to improve your rifle marksmanship and meet other like-minded folks who are the best folks that our nation has to offer. And listen, <clears throat> I can tell you this, that if those folks on April 19, 1775, if they'd had this option, they would have taken it. If you would have told them, look, <clears throat> you can either stand together in ranks, you can get shot, wounded, killed, have your homes burnt down, have your children, uh, your wives and children murdered, you can live in agony uh, and in pain for eight long bloody years without knowing that you're going to win. That's not a given. Knowing that you're going to win at the end of eight years was not a given. They didn't know that. You can either do that or you can get together on a weekend with your friends. Do something you'd like to do anyway, which is shooting. Learn how to become a better shot. Listen to folks tell the story of the people who came before them, and this by itself can help your country uh, repair itself, can help your country uh, save itself. All right, listen, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank the call screener. I want to thank everybody who listened tonight. Uh, be sure to tune in this next Thursday at uh, 7 p.m. Central Time for another edition of the Rifleman Radio Show. Thank you. God bless you all.
Thank you very much, sir. Wow.